Welcome to Property Unpacked, the podcast that unpacks the hot topics of property and explores how they affect you. I'm your host, Alice Stoltz. In this episode, we ask the question, are Australian renters getting a raw deal? And then we delve into the psychology behind a trip to Ikea. How do they hook us in and keep us coming back no matter what? Australia's most comprehensive changes to rental laws were recently passed in Victoria. Among other changes, renters in Victoria can now add picture hooks without question and landlords will have to ensure the toilet and the door locks work. These seem like incredibly basic measures, but they've taken several years to enact. With me to discuss these changes and the struggle that renters face is Joel Dignam, the Executive Director of Better Renting, a group which lobbies for tenants' rights. Joel, welcome to Property Unpacked. Thank you. Joel, really great to have you here. And I know this is such a hot topic for many people at the moment. Why did we struggle to get that initial rental reform across Australia? I think part of the struggle we have across Australia getting these sorts of reforms is that certainly in the last couple of decades or so, rental properties have been thought of foremost as being an asset. And so when governments are thinking out what to do, it's often from the lens of the person who owns that and their interests. And it's only more recently that policymakers have begun to think about the people who actually live in these dwellings for whom it's their home and what it would take to do more to make sure it's actually a good home for the people renting and living there. Mm. And Australia has a very different sort of response to renters than what many other countries around the world. Do you agree with that? Yeah. So people who rented overseas are often, whether they're Australians who've gone overseas temporarily or people from overseas who've come to Australia, are often astonished by the contrast. And particularly in Europe, it's much more common for people to be renting quite long term. Uh, it's a very normal thing for people to be doing, to be raising a family, to be spending a lot of their lives uh, renting their home. But in Australia, uh, certainly in the past, it's been seen as something that you only do temporarily, a sort of a tenure of transition. And our rental laws, unfortunately, reflects that attitude. But increasingly, it's actually out of step with what's true for a lot of people. Mm, it intrigues me. I lived in Paris for over a decade and we had to actually like bring our own kitchen in and we're allowed to paint the walls and put carpet over the parquet or, you know, whatever, and and put our own lights in and bring our own curtains and that sort of thing. And it sort of stems from the French in one part can't bear the thought of inheriting someone else's potentially bad taste. (laughs) But it's also because home ownership is so low there and they understand the importance of allowing tenants to feel like it is their home and obviously leases are sort of three to five years is completely normal. It's something that just struck me as so stark in comparison to what has happened in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the big difference, as you say, it's that sense of of home, of realising that people who are renting still want to make a home, uh, quite a different cultural attitude that then flows through to what's available to people in law. And a big part of that is not only the security of living in a place longer, but as you say, that much greater freedom to actually make it your own home, to tailor it for your tastes, to do the sorts of things where it can reflect what you need from the place you live. Mm. So the good news is we've got a little bit of reform that has been made. So in Victoria, we've seen that with things like automatic acceptance of pets and also, as we mentioned, being able to put up picture hooks. Can you just tell what your reaction to that was, Joel, when you heard that reform go into pass? You don't want to be critical of a government too much for doing this sort of thing. It's it's certainly a positive step. It's a recognition of the need for change. And in some of these areas, it will be useful in terms of the change that it makes. But at the same time, 
with so many more people renting and particularly renting longer term, it really is just tinkering at the edges. And so, for example, with the pets, what we see in Victoria is it's very far from automatic acceptance. The renters still need to seek landlord permission and the landlord can only refuse with reasonable grounds. Now, insisting that landlords actually have a reason to refuse a pet seems like a big step forward, but really it's the minimum we should be expecting. And then on pets, for example, there will still be issues for renters if they have to move, which is a common part of renting, unfortunately, where when they are applying for a rental property, they will be asked if they have pets. And if they have pets, then it's very easy for agents just to put their application at the bottom of the pile. So, you know, we want a rental sector when people can make a family, have a home, and often for Australians that does mean having a pet, and do that without having to worry that they'll struggle to get a home if they have to move. We certainly aren't there yet. Joel, how do the rental reforms across other states stack up? We've just touched on Victoria, but what about around the rest of the country? So there's definitely been movement in this area all over Australia recently, and currently some different states or territories are sort of reviewing their tenancy legislation with a view to changes. So probably another interesting one is Queensland. They haven't implemented changes yet, but late in 2019 they talked about a number of changes quite similar to what we've seen in Victoria including, very importantly, getting rid of unfair evictions. This is when the landlord can terminate the tenancy without even having to provide a reason. So Queensland hasn't actually enacted that yet. Things got pretty disrupted last year. Mm. But uh, it sort of shows the movement that we're seeing around Australia. And by and large, the key issues are the pets issue, minor modifications, and also this concern around evictions. Australian Capital Territory also enacted changes recently. There's been quite a few changes, again, around pets and, and the incoming government, which got elected last year, is also looking at unfair evictions. Mm. And what about in New South Wales? New South Wales, I find a bit disappointing. So they did change their tenancy laws fairly recently. There was a big push at the time to deal with the issue of unfair evictions. So no grounds, terminations, termination without cause, which unfortunately the, the cabinet ended up deciding not to do. They did do some work around minor modifications. But again, you know, minor modifications describes it pretty well because it's not going very far to actually make homes better for renters. One thing that is probably also worth noting that's been part of this wave of reforms is making life easier for people who might be dealing with domestic or family violence. So uh, in some of these situations, once you've got evidence of that, you can actually terminate your lease more easily or hopefully get the perpetrator to leave the tenancy and not be held accountable for damage that might have been caused. So that's certainly an important thing. But again, there's a lot of work to be doing. Joel, we know that affordability is such a problem for so many, particularly younger Australians at the moment, and we also know that as a result of that, renting is going to be on the increase, you know, indefinitely really, but definitely for the next few years ahead of us. How will this affect renters' rights, do you think, given that we are going to see a swelling of that demographic of people who are renting? Unfortunately, I'm fairly pessimistic about this and my worry is that this affordability crisis we see certainly for for buying but also for renting is actually going to have a detrimental effect on renters' rights, at least in the short term. So what we hear from renters is when they're renting somewhere where it's expensive, they've really struggled often to secure a tenancy, maybe they've, they've offered more than the asking price. Once they're in, they can't really risk getting the landlord offside because they're, they're terrified about the thought of having to go through that process again. So we hear from people who say there's a leak in the ceiling but the landlord won't repair it, but what can I do? Uh, and the sort of model we have where these laws exist in legislation but it's often up to the tenant to enforce them doesn't really work when people are so desperate just to have anywhere to live 
that they really don't want to rock the boat. I think also you just touched on that then, but it's also the affordability associated with moving. It's not just the difficulty in finding a place. It's also the costs associated with that, isn't it? So it's a really two-pronged problem. I think for many people. Yeah, it's it's an expensive thing to move. And you know, often these are forced moves that tenants didn't opt into. You know, if you're lucky you find a place you're probably paying more rent, you still have to pay for moving. Other people end up paying money to put their stuff in storage in between. And often, of course, paying the new bond before you've got your previous bond back. So there's a lot of costs associated with these moves and it's incredibly disruptive, not just financially. Mm. So how can we adjust the thinking about renting to be less about keeping an investment portfolio ticking over to be actually about the provision of housing as an essential service, similar to what we see in European countries? Like, How do we actually begin to really move the needle on that, Joel? So I think there are two changes that need to happen. So one of it you allude to there is that idea of housing as an essential service. So we think about our health system. There's a public healthcare system and there's also a private healthcare system. But if you can't afford to or don't want to go for the private system, the government has created a system where you can go and get your health needs met, you know, of course, through Medicare, which I think we're pretty proud of as Australians. Now, housing is just as important. It's, you know, it's just as important to your health, but for your basic ability to participate in society, it's critical to have a secure home and there needs to be a stronger public option. Governments have really vacated this space and sort of been pushed out and pulled in private investors, but I think we've really seen the limitations of that approach. So there's definitely a bigger role here for government to step up and say one way or another, we need to make sure that our citizens have a place to live. Mm. So what changes would you push for in the future, Joel? And do we have the political will to actually get more changes through? You know, should we feel content with the changes that now you can now put a picture up and, you know, have a lock on the door is basically as good as it's going to get? I certainly don't feel like we should feel content with the with the scraps really that have come through so far. And I think the reality is that a lot of renters in Victoria, for example, will soon realise that these long promised reforms don't really live up to the promise. I think as people with pets apply for a place and get knocked back, they'll think, wait a second, didn't the government say this wouldn't be an option anymore? So in terms of what we need to think about, I think there's probably two key areas. So one is when should a tenant have to leave their home? I think this is a question we need to think about. Now, at the moment, a lot of power is given to property investors to control when a tenant leaves their home. I think what would be great to see is indefinite open-ended tenancies where ideally the tenant leaves on their own terms, but if they're, they're going to leave for another reason, there's a greater notice period and a much greater requirement for that to be a valid reason. And that will give people much more opportunity just to feel secure, particularly um, to be less afraid of retaliation, for example. Mm. How do landlords feel about super long-term leases? Like, you know, I mean, I, I can assume probably not, aren't that excited by it, but is that the case? Like, do, do some landlords sort of prefer to have a long-term lease thinking, great, that will just keep ticking over and not have to worry about it too much? And obviously there will be over time some incremental cost increase baked into that, but do many landlords have an appetite for that? Yeah, so just to clarify, I'm talking about leases that could be long in practice. They'd sort of be open-ended and might end up being, you know, 10 years, but you wouldn't necessarily sign up for a five-year fixed term. This is something I think that could really align well with landlord interests because there's actually much greater security. You're, you're less likely to have an empty property. Uh, and the churn that we sort of can see at the moment is pretty good for real estate agents who, who make money. They're part of their fee structures around getting new leases signed but not necessarily as secure for the landlord who might be better off keeping the same tenant in. And if that tenant is empowered and trusted to actually make it their home, 
they're probably going to be looking after it and really appreciating that in a better way. Mm. So, Joel, I hear what you're saying and I think that all sounds great in theory. What happens though when you do have a bad egg as a tenant and the landlord are in situations where the property has been damaged or they're not paying rent? How can we get better at responding to those situations so that, you know, the landlord isn't burnt in that situation? So I think this is a bad situation to be in. If someone is not able to pay their rent, that's certainly bad if there's a private landlord depending on it. But we also need to think that it's pretty rough to be that person for whatever the reason it might be and to be at risk of homelessness because of that. So let's just take a step back and be like, it's, it's a failing of the system anytime someone's getting behind on their rent, particularly for lower income people. And I think part of this problem we have with the sort of for-profit private rental sector, which is the vast majority of the rental sector at the moment, is that it can't really cope with those situations. There are landlords out there who don't have the cash flow to manage that. And then what that can mean is someone loses their property within four weeks. And if you're someone who's struggling to pay rent, I tell you what, losing a home is not going to make your life any easier. And it's really going to put a lot of pressure on the sort of supports we have. So I, I guess what... I'd want to be seeing is a greater recognition of the role that landlords are playing currently and the importance of providing housing. And so perhaps doing more to ensure that people who are private landlords are actually in a position to wear some of the risk that comes with it, which is the risk that someone might not be able to pay their rent. At the moment, there's not much to actually assess whether landlords can deal with that, which also creates issues around, for example, unexpected repair costs. But part of this too is around government provision of housing. But also, of course, it's around government provision of an adequate safety net. We look at upcoming cuts to income support and clearly people who might be looking for work, who might experience uh, a disruption to their income are not given enough support by the government, particularly with the current rental market like it is, to actually just get on with the basic costs of living. So there's a, a few points of intervention here, but it would be good, I think we can all agree, anytime someone loses their home because they're struggling to pay rent, Something's gone wrong here. Mm. Just finally, Joel, what countries are doing it well around the world? We've sort of referred to Europe, but do you have any examples in particular of countries that are really doing this successfully that are benefiting both the landlord and the tenant? Well, I think uh, an example that comes to mind for me is certainly Sweden. Uh, It's probably one of the, the best examples. My brother actually rented in Sweden until recently. I remember him telling me one time, at Christmas, how he'd signed a new lease and he's like, oh, it's an open-ended lease. You know, we'll, we'll move out when, it's, when we're ready to move out. Uh, and that's a pretty good example of what you might look like, what you might want to see. And certainly in Sweden, there's, there's a lot of different sources of renting. There's sort of what we could roughly call community housing, cooperative housing, council-provided housing, and that seems to work really well. Another example is probably Germany, where there's actually quite a a large number of amateur landlords, like we see in Australia, small-scale landlords who might have one or two investment properties. Hmm. Uh, But, of course, the rental laws there, and I suspect the culture there, still ensure that people can have a secure rental home. So I think, for me, what's interesting is that we can have a rental system in Australia that still has a place for amateur small-scale landlords but at the same time can ensure better homes for these people who might be renting into retirement. And I think that's the challenge, but it's also what we need to be a bit more creative about solving. 
Mm. I think you're right. It's about finding that middle ground, isn't it? And as I was saying, I remember in France, there were all these sort of loopholes in the system. You couldn't evict people during winter. You couldn't evict anyone if the tenant was pregnant. You couldn't evict squatters after a certain amount of days. That basically became their property. And, you know, which was an extreme, obviously France is quite a socialist country in this regard. That's an extreme example. But I think it's about finding that middle ground where both parties are protected and, as you said before, respected. Uh, yes. <laughs> And I think we're we're certainly some way off that when we look at how um you know what he's like to be a rancher in Australia at the moment, sadly. Mm. Joel, that was really interesting. Thank you so much for joining me on Property Unpacked. A pleasure, thank you. It's funny how for some a trip to IKEA sounds better than a trip to most other furniture stores. I do not count myself in that group. But the question is, why? It all comes down to the store's layout, which is designed to trigger dopamine, the chemical that signals to the brain that something is rewarding and worth pursuing again. This results in us buying up big and returning again and again and again. Domain's lifestyle editor, Ash Austin, is here to chat about how IKEA's subtle yet powerful methods influence buyer behaviour. Ash, welcome to Property Unpacked. Oh, thanks so much, Alice. It's good to be back. Now, Ash, I don't know about you, but the word IKEA for me triggers all sorts of reactions. I'm trying to sort of park them and be quite neutral and professionally agnostic for this segment. But tell us a bit about this article that we're talking about and what it is saying that IKEA claims to do and insight for some people. Yeah, so we had a look at the psychology behind the actual store layout. So not so much clicking online and buying stuff and having it delivered, but why people go to IKEA as a bit of a destination, a day out. They enjoy going there from the restaurant to, to you know, looking through the showroom and the aisles and just perusing and spending a good couple of hours there. And so what is it about IKEA that keeps some people going back, myself not included. But what is it about some people that that it just really, you know, keeps pulling them back in? Yeah, so aside from being, you know, well-priced and readily accessible in most capital cities, there's less effort required when you visit an IKEA store. They've kind of done the work for you. So if you don't have that eye for interior design, they've set out the scenes of those home environments and, and there's often different layouts with varying design styles. So it's easy for customers to imagine the product in their home. And even if you go there and you don't purchase anything, you leave with a bit of inspiration so the trip doesn't feel wasted. You know, if you go to Westfield and you're looking for a dress and you come home empty-handed, you do feel a little bit dismayed but not with IKEA. Mm. And how do you reckon it's changed? I found a hack that I discovered during COVID actually was that they Mm. had – I look, actually had the time to look at the store map at Ikea and this just sounds so ridiculous, but I, I realised I didn't have to go through the whole maze-like floor to get to the marketplace and I could actually find a, a shortcut. But do they not encourage it that much? Like it, it's taken me a, a long time in my life to get to that point. Is that kind of a secret about Ikea that there are shortcuts in there that most people don't know about? Oh, absolutely. There are arrows and signs that lead you through the whole showroom. So they do not want you to just nick through the marketplace. They want you to go through the showroom. And then, of course, let's not forget the restaurant. So that's the midway point. So you can take a break without leaving the store and then spend more time browsing the marketplace after you've been through the showroom and had something to eat. So on that note, Ash, the food at Ikea, some people love it, I hear. Is this correct? Some people love it. They actually go there. There's there's a big culture of going to Ikea just to have a meal. I'm not really sold on it, 
But hey, the meatballs keep some people coming back. Yeah, it's quite amazing, isn't it? But it is, I suppose you're getting that sort of that energy hit though, which you know how you can often feel a bit, well, I feel a bit dazed and confused again in poor old Ikea. And I suppose if one can find a bit of nourishment through food, it might actually keep you in there longer. And that's obviously what they're banking on. Absolutely. I mean, I think a coffee works better than a big plate of meatballs when I need to focus on going and buying a cutlery set. But hey, whatever works for you in getting that sugar up. Mm. And I think part of IKEA's sort of strength has been how they've their presence in our lives is just growing day by day by day. Like, for example, my kids love going there, you know, from the ball pit area to then just sort of lolling about on beds or something. And I keep thinking they're going to be a generation who probably actually feel a lot more positive about it than what I certainly did, maybe because this, the brand has got much better at making it a wonderful experience for some people to enjoy. Absolutely. And again, I think shopping isn't a sport that everyone enjoys. Some people love a day out shopping and other people just find it really draining and they unwind in different ways. But there are some people out there who look at a day at Ikea Mm. as as a, a real day out. Just one last question, Ash. Is there a bit of a cringe factor when you think about styling homes for sale or people are styling their property to make it look extra beautiful to have too much IKEA that people feel a bit self-conscious about or do you think that at the moment it's kind of seen in quite a positive responsible way, particularly with IKEA doing lots of sustainable furniture and that sort of stuff now? Well, I think it can be a little bit cut and copy. So it's hard to inject personality if everything is from IKEA. So it's really important if you are styling with IKEA to, you know, go and look at maybe putting some vintage pieces in there or some special keepsakes that kind of lift and elevate the mood of the room without it looking like an Ikea showroom. So if you close your eyes and open them and it looks like you're in Ikea, well, then it looks like you're in Ikea. You need to inject a few other um, interest points, I would say. (laughs) Very, very true. Ash Austin, thank you so much. That was really illuminating. Um, It was great chatting with you. Thanks, Alice. You've been listening to Property Unpacked, a podcast by Domain. If you like what you've heard, hit subscribe and look out for further episodes. Our executive producer is Adrian Lowe with production by Hayley Cools and editing and mixing by Dan McHugh. For more property news, advice and market insights, head to domain.com.au or download the Domain app. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.